Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Welcome to episode 4 of series 3 of an interview podcast. Big shout out again to Shire Baron Cafe for the continued support. We really appreciate it guys. This week we're delighted to be joined by Richard Fitzgerald, CEO and founder of the award winning modern media company Augustus Media, who are also the publishers of Love in Dubai, Love in Saudi and Smashy TV. Fitzgerald has a wealth of experience in the media space which he has accumulated over a number of years work in Ireland, England and the UAE. There's no doubt we've a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Look, Richard, thanks for taking time out to come on and interview the podcast. It's, uh, it's an honour to be here today in the new studios in Production City. This took a while to get going and it wasn't as straightforward. Do you want to kind of bring us through that story? Yeah, so also, thank you, Jamie. It's always impressive to see uh, people who aren't naturally in the sort of media space become content creators so you know hats off to you to what you've done so far it's really impressive and uh yeah thanks for having me on but um yeah like uh, the, you know wh- where we are we're in um, a 12,000 square foot unit in dubai production city uh it's uh, a space that sort of we moved into this year we're six and a half years old as a modern media company uh with offices in dubai riyadh and cairo uh we're just up to say 50 people I think we're 46 full-time employees uh, across the region and uh, yeah this this is almost like a commitment to creating content to doing what we set out to do with Love in Dubai Love in Saudi and, and now 10 Lovins across the region and smash your streaming service it was an investment it cost a million dollars just for the fit out in the five studios we have here uh, which we funded through free cash flow and and profits. We've been profitable since 2017. Last year we did 3.6 million uh, turnover and 5.2 million or 3 million gross revenue. So that's what that's where we are. That's that, you know it did take a while to get there and we can talk about the early part, but that's this is where we are today. Let's. Um before we, we'd, I'd like to bring the, the guests back to the early days. Before I go back to that, I would like to ask you about the cryptocurrency. Um, can you kind of give us an insight into exactly what crypto is? You know, we hear we hear that that, uh, that term bounce around, and a lot of people would know it's it's uh, it's it, it is what it is, and other people have no um, knowledge around it, and people might be reluctant to you know dip their toes into it. what is it and why you're using it with Smashy. Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, crypto can have many narratives and many terms and Bitcoin. I won't go into that really. I'll just assume that people have heard some sort of description. But because why? Because I need to give an answer that's related to us, right, yeah, in exactly. terms of media, right? And um, on one level, the current buzz around crypto is the Web3 stuff. So uh, NFTs and things like that. And the easiest way for anyone to think of Web3 in our world is... In Web 1, it's uh, text on website, articles and things like that, and search engines. Google is Web 1, right? So it's publishing on on Web 1, right? And Web 2 
social media web 2.0 is a term coined by a guy called uh, Tim O'Reilly or Bill O'Reilly in 2004 Uh, and if you go back to Google's around 1995 right like they listed in 2003 I think and 2004 uh, this web web 2.0 term right now Facebook 2005 uh, we remember Bebo 2006 things like that right and um, you know all the other social networks MySpace and things like that but Actually, like the, the 2.0 was just that ability to put dynamic text and interaction with Web 1, so with articles. So it was actually comments and, you know, um, you know Dig and these, these websites stumble upon. It was, it, was, it was social networks in that sense, in that people can be more interactive with the content. YouTube is 2005, right? So it was anything sort of like that. But, but uh, many things that... We've, we've been, been through the 15-year narrative around social media, the good and the bad and whatever. Uh, and But the users never really benefited from it financially. Now, Web3 is that value exchange. It's that layer of crypto token economy, right? So the creator economy, the token economy, and it's really that idea that there's a value exchange happening now. Um, and crypto underpins all that and the blockchain underpins all that. So um, it's just my kind of reading into it that you don't necessarily we don't necessarily people try and do pattern neck recognition and go oh this is just like when this is just like when right like which is fine but i actually think that all these tokens like ethereum and nfts and all these things that are coming up yep. are um the ones that will can benefit from that is web too like social networks will be the thing that that does benefit from this stuff once people start monetizing their presence and their audiences. Um, so I think that's where we're headed. Uh, what is Smashy? Smashy, first of all, or Smashy Crypto, Smashy, first of all, is uh, a, a streaming service. It's a business TV channel, right? Which might seem mad, but we came up with it in 2019, 2020, and we built the technology from scratch. Uh, so it's a streaming service, a TV channel. It's uh, on smart TVs, it's on Apple TV, it's on things like that. Uh, but taking a step back, we, we try to create what we call mindset brands, not, you know, a traditional publishing house or TV station might have channels or they might have magazines for automotive, for sport, for whatever, beauty. We, we like to do, loving we say is loving your life. It's a horizontal, it's loving Dubai, it's everything about the city, but there's also some utility in it like traffic news and apps for laundry and stuff like that. Smashy, uh, we say for the driven dreamers doers, so it's a business and tech channel, but it's on the thesis that there's a young cohort in the Middle East who want economic prosperity. And we want to be the media lens and the brand that captures that. You know, just like CNN or any of those when they were born or MTV or Vice magazine, they captured the zeitgeist of what was happening then. And that's what we want Smashy to do. So why, why crypto? Well, first of all, we decided to build a vertical approach. So Smashy business, Smashy gaming, smashy sports, smashy style, smashy everything, but always through the lens of business. Like, uh, you know, if you look at sport media around the world now, you have some that are streaming like The Zone and things like that. Mm -hmm. And you have some that are just good articles like The Athletic. We want, uh, or Bleacher Report or things like that. We want smashy sports to be the business side of sports for the Middle East. And we want crypto, smashy crypto, to be the business side of crypto media for the region 
so that's our main media play. It's an audience play. Uh, you know, what are what's Augustus going to do on on crypto and NFTs? I'll save that for another day, but but we'll explore that differently. For now, we want we want crypto. We want to be the media people covering crypto because, Jamie, like what what happens when a lot of people are interested in something? There needs to be a media beside it, right? Like if people are interested in GAA, then there'll be a GAA website with news. If people are interested in trade retail trading in the US, if they're using Robinhood. Then there's a chance for a media. So say there's something like 30 million daily active traders on Robinhood in the US, right? And that's that's created what well, people can say good or bad about it, but those people weren't able to buy shares really before. They didn't have that sort of, you know, minimum thing you need for brokerage and things like that. So uh, on one side of it, there's the fintech side of it. On the other side of it, what's the media happening? Some listeners might know of. Uh, a media publication, a newsletter out of the US called Morning Brew that started by two guys about five years ago and they've got four million daily subscribers that just do short texts around business. Why, why was that possible? Those four million are basically the Robin Hood traders. So whenever there's a cohort, whenever there's a huge thing and it can be, it can be sports, it can be Dubai, a city, it can be you're wearing um, a mental health hat, noggin. It can be a, a, a topic. It can be female empowerment. You, if people care enough about that, you can build a media around it. If you know, so your your media can be around something. It can and and we want Smashy Crypto to be around the people who are interested in knowing more about crypto technology in the Middle East, North Africa. So, so that's it at the moment. But I suppose down the line, you. Is there any NFTs attached to Augustus at the moment, or is that the long-term goal? Strategically, the way that we look at uh, revenue is we're a modern media company, and the best way to make money for us is many ways. So, But we kind of look at it as three buckets. Content like advertising, mm-hmm. which is branded content, sponsored posts, and things like that. And that's kind of heavy lifting because you have to sell, you have to create, you have to deliver the client service, and you have to chase the money, right? So there's a lot of stuff happening there. That, that, that's the main bucket. And a couple of years ago, that was the majority, that was like 90, 95% of our business. Now it's about 70%. And what's crept up is this strategy around audience revenue, things we don't have to sell. If we have a big audience watching our shows, We've just launched, um, we have six shows on Snapchat in Arabic. And Snapchat is massive in Saudi Arabia. And we have the biggest Arabic show in the world, like pretty much, because outside of the US, the number one city in the world uh, for Snapchat is Riyadh and number two is Jeddah. Whoa. Yeah, massive over there. And uh, But we've got shows over there that get um, millions of views. And Snapchat share that revenue with us. But they sell the revenue. So we approach audience revenue like YouTube revenue uh, and Twitter revenue like that. And then the third bucket, we call that the creator economy. So if your podcast gets rev share subscription, um, not sponsored, if it gets revenue share through programmatic audio ads that's coming or if it gets rev share through, uh, yeah, through that, 
then that's that's what we call the creator economy. So if the platforms incentivize you, if Spotify give you more preference to be on your channel and they serve ads against this podcast and you take a cut of what they get, 50%, that's audience revenue, that's the creator economy, right? So we'll chase that. We'll do everything we can to make revenue on platforms because we know they're throwing money at it. And then the third bucket of revenue is a direct-to-consumer, which many people will understand in other business terms. The way we see it is a debit card or a credit card from a person rather than a business or rather than a partner. And uh, But we actually are taking that a level further. We're calling that the token economy. So any value exchange from an individual, crypto is that revenue, right? So we at the moment, we might launch Love and Extra subscription and you might get a free bottle or a ticket to a concert. And then we might launch a Love and Festival, um, and traditionally in the past, we would sell tickets to that. In the future, we'll sell NFTs that get access to the event. So, But that's our strategies all around uh, token economy and consumer revenue. So yes, we will do things there in that space. But Jamie, you know, to do that, it's another business. Like you need, to have, you need to manage Discord accounts. You need to have customer service. You need to get Solidify developers to build on the blockchain you know, on top of all the other developers that we're doing. So, uh, like, there's lots of things that we need to do around that for for revenue and for audience. Now, we're in the studio here. So another thing as well related to crypto and NFTs is the metaverse. Okay. Uh, and the metaverse is, is kind of similar in this future trends. It's, it's basically mixed reality, augmented reality and virtual realities. Where, and the big platforms differ. Snapchat... Um, Evan Spiegel, you know, really believes in augmented reality. He doesn't want people to escape the world. He wants them to get their phones out and put cool things on top of the world. Whereas Zuckerberg believes in the other one, which is uh, virtual reality. So people escape the world and put the headsets on, right? But the whole trend is the mixed reality stuff. And uh, the metaverse is part of that. And, you know, a simple thing like, you know, because we have the designs, the modeling of this studio space... Um, you know, our intention would be to put Augustus Media's studios into buy a plot of land on Sandbox or whatever, um, or just central land, and, and put up our studios there, uh, and whatever we can do out of that. Are we? Are you and I having this call uh, in the metaverse? Maybe. Are we having guests from our offices in Cairo attending our boardroom here? Maybe. Like. Who knows? I'm, I'm not going all in on it. I just know that, you know, if we learned anything, and I started my career in Dublin in, in 2006 and I joined the digital agency a, a year later, and if I've learned anything from the last 15 years is that this thing is inevitable and you just have to go with it over the next 10, 15 years. But it will take that length of time. It's just about going with the trend and keeping in touch with it and see what what happens. Um, yeah, and strategically online. see where it fits for you. Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. Definitely. Um, look, just briefly, I'd like to like what I like to do with the guests, bring them back, and like to identify to the audience how the person we're speaking to today, what brought them to to where they are, and what shaped them into the person they are today. You're an Irish man. You're after getting the gold visa here, uh, which shows you're after you know making a massive impact on the on the economy um, and will make further impact going forward. How did you get to this stage? I believe you had aspirations to go down the route of management in in football. How did you divert into the? 
digital space? I grew up in, uh, I'm 38, I grew up in Ungueltacht and Rhineland-Stanfobel and I went to uh, school, Irish school in Old Parish and then Ring and then I went to uh, secondary school in Clongos in Kildare and I was forced into playing rugby where I wasn't very good at it, it was compulsory, <laughs> uh, but I loved soccer, I loved it and I just wasn't good enough to play competitively but I got really into reading like every young kid in Ireland like watching the football games reading books autobiographies and when I went to UCD I took um, psychology because as part of like arts and then I gave it up and I did economics in German but I was doing it because I was like oh Jose Marino did this in did um, something like this in uh, in Lisbon and Arsene Wenger studied economics in Strasbourg and I was like this is how I'm going to do it and then I did my FAI uh, coaching level A and, and I was doing all that in Waterford and in Dublin and it, I worked it, as, well, as well as you know having a student life in Dublin from 2002-2006 uh, uh, I also coached in evenings with Sheriff Street right. Sheriff Boys that, uh, at inner city Dublin soccer team and uh, you know learned a lot about football that way but by the end of it I was kind of like it's a sport and you know my passion was kind of slowly ebbing away because of I was kind of learning new things I was exposed to new things and while I still love uh, team I love many things from football now which I take into how I manage the teams here and performance and seeing them grow and I love I love teamwork in, in what we do now but I I um, basically shifted from that into uh, advertising and I started by 2006 I was reading about social media and I just finished arts and I was kind of like um, trying to get a job in advertising and I couldn't really get one and I took one in Bray uh, selling outdoor newspaper boxes that are outside news agents all over Ireland uh, and that was like an admin job in outdoor advertising. Outdoor advertising hasn't really changed and still hasn't. It hasn't really gone digital. And I knew I, I was like, I have to get into digital marketing. I have to get into social media. Um, and I, the only digital course in Ireland at the time was one in uh, Dublin Business School, an evening diploma. And Jimmy, I was never top of my class in anything, but I, I paid for myself. I think it was four or five hundred euro. I wasn't earning much. Uh, like it's only like twenty something thousand euro a year is first job tax all that stuff, oh, and uh, so I but I paid myself and I was running from Bray to the Dart, like literally running from the top of Bray because I was training for a marathon and then getting the Dart into Dublin to attend the evening course and got did really well in that like top of the class or whatever. And then I used that as a way to interview for a big digital agency in Ireland, the leading one. It's called Huskies now. At the time, it was called Cybercom. And I got in as an account executive in uh, mid-2007 and spent two and a half years there and then saw that social media was coming up. And I was like, uh, right, I need, to, I need to get into social media. But I wasn't, um, you know, I was... I wasn't like attention to detail wasn't great I was client of service and I was making spelling mistakes and my bosses didn't think I was progressing well and I was you know a bit petulant and I didn't have confidence with clients so my career wasn't really taken off like I was there for two and a half years loved it worked on great projects for Vodafone for Coca-Cola mainly I was doing Coca-Cola and you know the Doyle collection and Aer Lingus emails and all that sort of stuff like you know doing, doing all the good digital stuff back then 
loved it and it really set me up for the rest of my career that skill and, and the stuff that those guys taught me and, and girls like it was amazing uh, but I didn't really progress and I was kind of like gosh you should be doing a social media department and they kind of knew but maybe didn't want to trust a 25 year old or whatever so I um, took this was a recession in Ireland 2009 end of 2009 and I emigrated uh, not because I didn't have a job. I emigrated, I took a pay cut. I was on 25,000 euro a year and I took a pay cut, 22,000 sterling to go to London to join the biggest, what became the biggest social media agency in the world, We Are Social. But I did it because I really wanted to work in social media. And then I, a few things happened. I managed to set up a famous, at the time in London, blog called 52 Burrito Dates because I, I won vouchers and I dated a different girl every week for a year and it got really well known and it got me another job in London with a big global agency, part of WPP. And it was there that I, that I was 400 people and they started caring more about conflict resolution, people management, and they promoted me. And I was, I was then, you know, about 28 and I finally got to kind of senior management level. But I was like, I need to be a director now. I've been doing this a while. And they weren't giving me a social media director job. And my bosses were like 10 years, 15 years older than me. As London's very sophisticated, right? So the industry is established. So it's, it's harder to kind of climb the ladder. You have to be patient. And I was in, living in East London. I had long hair. I'm bald now. But I had long hair. I had a fixie bike. And I was like you know, having beers after work and all these bars. And I just kind of thought of what my next 10 years would be and seeing people with cool T-shirts and beards and bags under their eyes and going, I don't really know if I want this. And I was getting a few headhunters, a few random LinkedIn DM, whatever messages, a social media directors in Dubai. And I never been here. Like, I never crossed my radar. I think I passed through Abu Dhabi once on a flight or whatever, but I didn't think of it. I wanted to be in London. It was before the Olympics. So I wanted to be in a city that stuff was happening. Yeah, exactly. And, um, but then I took a, a job here to be social media director for the region. And I did really well at it. Like, you know, I can say modestly, but it just took off. I got, you know, they had offices in 12 countries and I set up a department in Beirut. I hired 30 trilingual graduates and I, we, I serviced all their clients like HSBC, Nissan, um, all these brands across the region. And uh, by 2015, um, I was still here, right? So and I, like when I came over, you know, like I, I had a privileged enough upbringing, but I didn't have any money at that level. Like, I, you know, I didn't have any savings. Like in advertising, they don't pay you well in your 20s. So I didn't have any money coming here and I wasn't coming, I was coming here on one level as a mercenary because I was getting, you know, double what I was getting in London and it was tax free and it was nice, right? I was well paid in as a 28, 29 year old in Dubai, but... Um, cost of living is quite high. Cost of living is high, and then, but I was also living like an expat, like I was flying my sister over, I was buying tickets, I was going for brunches and stuff like that, as well as like the sport I love or whatever, but, um, but the penny didn't really drop in terms of... Like, you know, I was kind of always like had anxiety of like, I need to do more. Like, I need to be more fulfilled. Like, uh, you know, should I set up a social media agency? Should I do this? Should I do that? So, um, so uh, that's really like, I was there for about three years. I remember one flight back from Beirut that I had to go down and, and basically fire someone over something, let someone go. And I was kind of thinking, um, <clears throat> you know, what should I do next, basically?
Richard, before we get into the, um, the next part of that, which is love in Dubai, what was it like in, in Ireland, we say, around when you're working with uh, Cybercom, the, you know, it was the boom, everything was going excellent, the Celtic Tiger was fully roaring. You touched on that, but let's just take a step back. What did you learn from your time in Ireland going through all that, you know, um, going through all those steps? And then what did you learn in London that helped you to progress here in uh, in Dubai? So uh, when you mentioned that Celtic Tiger, Jamie, our Christmas party in 2007 was very different to our Christmas party in 2008. <laughs> We were we were about we were riding high. We were the digital leaders in town, and there was about thirty or forty of us. And we basically had a not necessarily rented a Ryanair plane, but we went to uh, the middle of France uh, to a, a village with a chalet, and we rented a chalet at a Christmas party and we ransacked the place, like burnt old tapestries, not not a, knocked like, knocked over and broke, like really uh, art you know, antique tables and things like that. And the bill the MD got afterwards was crazy and the mayor had to apologise to the town and all that sort of stuff. We were wild, right? Um, not, not to be proud of it, but it was it was wild times. And the next year, I think we went to a Pizza Express or something like Whoa. that. So, so, and a lot of people got let go and it was recession and stuff like that. But answering the question, I learned, like anything in a good school, I learned the, the detail that you need to learn. Account executive in this industry is about day-to-day attention to detail client service and the skills that I learned was unbelievable like they pushed me hard like they really pushed me to breaking points on on everything right to do reports to do every detail and looking back now I was handling 11 clients or something on app development widgets on Bebo we built games for Coca-Cola like project management games we built microsites I was handling all the Google AdWords for the Doyle Collection and Jury's Doyle, right? Like 10 or 11 premium properties. I was doing emails for all the 50% off flight offers for New York, a team of three. and But I was the exec, so I was doing all the, all this stuff and, and more and more and more clients. And I was doing SEO, um, like paid search, paid social, display campaigns, banner ads, MPUs, like all this stuff. So it, it was like a crash course in digital. It was amazing. Unbelievable. In London, I went from managing 11 accounts across like five or six digital disciplines to doing just social media for one Coca-Cola account. In Ireland, I was doing all the Coca-Cola brands, like Fanta, Powerade, whatever. We did the Powerade Never Give Up ads. The, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the Gaelic team in, in, in um, where were they? In, what were they called? In Offaly? No, in... Um, ah, uh, anyway, um, but we did all this with Paula Con, We did all those campaigns back then, video ads. Like, they won global awards for it. And, um, man, anyway, I must think it is. It's really a baptism, baptism of fire, wasn't it, really? Yeah. You you were thrown into it. You learned uh, incredible skill. Incredible. That really set you up for it. Incredible on the technical side, Jamie, but not on the confidence, not on the, you know, the London suave advertising exec. So I was never... I could never speak in front of clients. I was never confident. I go into London and I have no authority. I'm all over the place. I'm full of knowledge and I can't communicate. How did you get to, how did you fix that? Uh, I struggled a lot. I went to, I put myself through evening classes of, um, what's that thing called? Uh, uh, the, the t- 
speaking groups um the chapters what are they called um yeah and i did that and i got taken off accounts in london because the client would say that i wasn't confident enough to speak in meetings and my bosses didn't stick up for me like i struggled and i just persisted and i believed in myself like i remember one career coach told me that you're not really cut out for this industry you've had conflicts with your bosses your clients don't x and i was like yeah but i love it and i know a lot about it and i just kept going and um but then like by the time i came over here it was a bit easier because i was just i was so full of knowledge of social then and people listened to me uh and then that, that was that but what i learned in london was you know sometimes in ireland i might feel inferior to what's happening in digital marketing in the best cities in the world like new york and london but when i got there i realized hang on these guys know probably less than me right so i've nothing to be afraid of there's no knowledge gap here um and that was a that was a good two and a half years in london it was a lot of fun made a lot of friends um got more confident and, and what what they didn't teach me in the digital skills side they taught me about business and they taught me about how to navigate um in advertising there's a lot of different agencies pitching for business there's a lot of different conflict with clients there's um they taught me a lot about the people side of things and the business side of things so i had a, i had good balance of both brilliant brilliant and you know you hear people nowadays and maybe it's just this generation where we that I'm part of as well um that you know it took you 15 years to get where you are if not more um but nowadays people are looking for that instant gratification or instant results they're not kind of willing to go through the hard graft the just the experience you learn over that period what would you say to people like that because it is the generation we're living in due to social media you want to get on constant you know constant gratification people might be willing to go through the the hard yards if you know what I'm what I'm trying to ask i think business is the ultimate sport and i think the great thing about business is that it doesn't have a, a time lapse unless your life ends right like you know with sports you kind of need to do things quicker and if you raise a lot of money you need to do things quick but in i'm lucky i've got a horizon like there's people i look up to might go mountain or people who run their business 70s 80s 90s like it's not nice to say rupert murdoch is an inspiration because of all the negative connotations with that name but he still walks around a newsroom at 90 and makes decisions i'm inspired by that i'm inspired by longevity so if i'm inspired by longevity and loving what i do every day then i then i have patience and yeah i have pressure that i want to deliver but uh so i've always sort of had that long game in mind and i think i think people really if you ask that question like once people start once once a flick switch a, a switch flicks for people and once they start really thinking about their career and ambition and long term success um or just being in control just being their own decision maker and boss then every piece of advice you come across is about being patient you know and if you listen if you read snowball if you listen to any warren buffett stuff anything that gary vaynerchuk says about building a meaningful business over time anything that anyone who knows what they're talking about says they all say be patient uh, be patient but enjoy it and you know like um yeah it's taken me 15 years but i only feel like a like the making the jump into that that augustus media thing in 2015 when i was 32 that was really when it kind of started that was really when i was like right i'm designing my life around this now i have like the the sort of road map to go long 
right? If you're in a job and the company, like you're forced to think short term sometimes or to the next promotion or whatever. But once I sort of had that long term plan of building the modern media company of choice in the Middle East, knowing that this region needs to take time to develop as well, then everything sort of aligned with sort of a 10, 20, 30, 40 year plan. And we say before that, between when you want to go down the route of media and to the age of 33 when you start Augustus, what, how do you deal with that kind of uncertainty of what way you want to go in life? Because, you know, people in their 20s, they can have a lot of anxiety, like, where, what am I supposed to do if they're not an accountant or if they're not a teacher? They're both career paths that you know you're going to do for the rest of your life. But for life yourself that was in media, how do you deal with that uncertainty? Or did you always know, I want to own my own company one day? A lot of anxiety. In fact, I think there's 10 years in my 20s until that, and still there's anxiety, but every big decision was full of it. Jamie, like whenever it was, you know, when I had conflict with bosses, I had to leave a company in London. I was unemployed for a bit, uh, full of anxiety, like 27 in London, unemployed for a few months. Uh, over here, I had a big job here and I was wanting more, uh, wanting people to do more in content and things like that. And I resigned and I changed my mind and I spoke to people here to help me set up a social media agency to give me the backing to do it. So I was constantly um, questioning things, constantly debating, struggling with that, with what you described, struggling with what it is that I want to do. But on the same side, knowing exactly what I wanted to do, just not being there yet. Like knowing, you know, getting up in the middle of the night, like like anyone who understands this and writing down notes of what is a real-time social media agency, what is my business idea or this or that or whatever. All, all had all those emotions. Uh, so, but I think like I still had a job to do and I was still making money and I was still learning things. But a little bit frustrated that I wasn't, you know, making enough money to kind of spot the trends, like invest in Facebook when I knew it was going to be big and like things like that. I couldn't capitalize on those things, whereas I can now. And that's the difference in, in that time that, you know, I, I went, I, I did struggle with uh, knowing what it, what it is I wanted to do uh, or knowing what it would be I wanted to do um, and thinking on some level you know, I'm part of WPP, maybe I'll just climb the ladder here. Maybe I'll be an executive, etc. Um, that Sir Martin Sorrell knows and blah, blah, blah. Maybe I'll do the corporate world. Um, and, um, you know, you know, so, but in the end, in the end, it kind of um, just almost presented itself. Brilliant. And you, you touched on um, loving there before I, I stopped you. Do you want to kind of bring us into from 15 onwards? How did it come about and is it going as planned or did it just did the business plan change as, as you went on? Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting one. It's quite like it's quite um, so love in Dubai is is something at the moment in the UAE, which is a fast growing economy, a country of nearly ten million people, and there aren't that many innovative media brands, right, and media guidelines in this region. There were four newspapers, licenses. Now there's three. We bought the remnants of Seven Days uh, tabloid that was part of Daily Mail Group. So we're the only, in one level... Yeah, UK Daily Mail. Yeah, they they had a a subsidiary. So our part ownership of Seven Days newspaper. And uh, so we're, in one way, we're a digital version of the only tabloid in a country of 10 million people. And our audience reflects that. 
You know, we've got millions of followers, we've got big audience, we do a lot of revenue. Uh, as I said, we're nearly 50 people and we built it on the back of that. But it wasn't my idea, right? Like, and I, well, I'll tell you what, how it happened. So, as I said, I was coming back from Beirut and I, I told one guy we used to work with, he had his own company, this is what you should do with your company, um, but make me MD. And so I was a regional head of social, social media director, and any job that I left, the four or five agencies that I left in 10 years, thinking back, the only reason I left any of them is because they didn't match my ambition. I was, I was telling everyone in there, I want to do more. In Dublin, I wanted them to let me set up a social media department. In London, I wanted them to make me a social media director. In Dubai, I wanted to make them to make me a managing director and give me equity. And none of them gave, gave it to me, so I looked for it elsewhere. And I, this guy gave me managing director. And in that summer of 2015, I messaged an old friend of mine from Dublin, Niall Harbison, who'd set up Love in Dublin in about 2012. He'd also, um, he and I, or he, he set up uh, Simply Zesty, but he shared with me the business plan and I was going to invest in it with him at that time in Cybercom. This is an agency that he went on to sell to UTV, um, a social media agency, one of the, the first one in Ireland, I think. Um, but I didn't have the courage to jump and join him at the time. And, you know, five or seven years later, I said, what are you doing with Love in Dublin? And he said, funny, Rich, you say that. I uh, just had a meeting with my MD and we'd like to do a franchise model. So I wrote a 10-year area developer agreement with my brother who helped. Uh, and we uh, took Love in Dubai uh, and the intention of doing Love in across the region. And I set up Augustus as the holding vehicle. Augustus Media is the holding vehicle. And we launched it on the 1st of September, 2015. Uh, and it went viral, like 250,000 page views in the first month. Some viral articles, like 23 reasons you need to visit Dubai once before you die, like this sort of clickbait BuzzFeed stuff yeah. and took off. And But I was still MD of this startup. So I, on one level, and I had to get funds together. Like the, he wasn't giving it for free. Like we were paying, I think, $20,000 a year for the first year up to 40. And every city was a new 20 or 40K for five years. Like it wasn't cheap. And um, Dubai isn't cheap. And I hired an editor who had ex-Sun newspaper, ex-Stylist magazine, um, from one of the big publishing houses here and I hired a junior social media salesperson and I had another s startup license in, if people know Dubai and DMCC and mm -hmm. Astrolabs and I was across the road in this tech startup so uh, and I put all my funds into it and I raised a little bit of money I, about 25% of the company went out then for about $140,000 or one hundred twenty, and I put in uh, 20 or 40 or something like that so it was, 100, it was 160 total and by eight months in it was nearly all gone and we we had big audience we had no money uh, so I quit the startup and I'd already taken a pay cut to join it and now I was like back to not having it basically not having a salary on the 1st of May 2016 but the I got the editor to leave uh, because the the, 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 she was a brilliant editor but not a social media clickbait editor uh, which isn't a proud thing to say but you know uh, in one level it was an audience intention game mm -hmm. and I joined that then I can't spell right like I'm not a writer uh, but Same. I got the page views from <laughs> from 250,000 a month from in the 1st of May 2016 to 2.9 million page views by June 2017 Whoa. 
uh, I just didn't stop. I wrote 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and I started pitching that business and I got some small clients and I won some social media clients to get the business going. And eventually I got it up to five people and we moved out of the co-working space to an office 800 square foot. Got By 2019, got that up to 12 people, then up to 19 people uh, into the new office in JLT and then into here. In the meantime, uh, Love in Dubai was getting bigger and bigger. Uh, people were getting to know of it. We were getting respect. We were getting clients. Uh, we had a few run-ins. We had a few legal stuff that toughened us up and almost put us out of business. Uh, we then, with Dublin, the agreement that we had with Dublin, we uh, opened a second entity in Saudi Arabia in 2017. And the reason I launched Love in Saudi is because it would have been more expensive to launch Love in Riyadh and Love in Jeddah. Now we've launched them. But I launched it to be one brand for the whole country. And um, we were the first foreign-owned media brand in Saudi Arabia because they just allowed ownership licenses. Before then, you needed a partner. This was before MBS came in and we did it in English and then we, now we've gone in Arabic and now we have full team of Saudi national media graduates on the ground in Riyadh, studios, content, everything like that. But with Dublin, uh, Nal left in um, summer 2018, algorithm changed, uh, the investors had uh, a different direction for the business and Nile did quite well and he sold out of the business. Uh, and then in the next year and a half, we negotiated out of that business. So we were thinking it's important for us, three things we try and do, digital IP, the Middle East, and so digital IP in the Middle East. So um, everything to do with digital publishing and IP, we needed our own brands. And yeah. now we own Lovin for 16 territories in the region. Well, it's your own, it's not Lovin franchise it's, anymore. It's our own, yeah. Uh, and we also own Smashy as well. But So Lovin was our own and we bought out of it. And when we bought out of it, we launched an app. We launched 10 new cities. We rebranded the colour, the font. And now this year, so we have uh, four cities in UAE. Uh, Lovin Sharjah, Lovin Rasakhaima, Lovin Abu Dhabi, Lovin Dubai. And five entities in Saudi Arabia, four cities. We have a joint venture in Pakistan. So we have three cities live there, Love in Islo, Love in Karachi and Love in Lahore, Islo for Islamabad. We're going to launch Love in Cairo this year and we're going to launch Love in Doha this year. Um, and we're exploring, Jamie, all the different ways, JVs, people on the ground, things like that. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, just in the interest of time, we'll, uh, we'll, I'll, I'd like to ask you one or two more things. Um, you've been referred to the Gary Vaynerchuk of the Middle East. Um, when I heard this, I said I'd have to ask you about it. How did that come about? Yeah, well, I, I think that's almost not really disingenuous to Gary Vaynerchuk, but there's, a, there's a, and I guess there are a lot more Arabic-speaking Gary Vaynerchuk-type people over here who are more... So Gary, Gary's got two things there, right? Like, he's he's got his... Vayner Media and you his, met him he was here wasn't he yeah yeah. I know I know him through being in this space for 15 years and would have known of him early doors and read his books and then he's very interesting guy. yeah brilliant I, I get a lot like he inspires entrepreneurs right but I spent time with him in, in the US here uh, lucky enough people have helped him, got a lot out of what he does but you know I'm definitely not so Gary does two things. He does his agency stuff, and then he does brand Garvey. I don't do brands Richard Fitzgerald. I don't do it, right? And I don't intend to do it. 
Um, he's brilliant at it, and I wouldn't be as good at it, but I strategically don't do it because I, I'm trying to build Augustus Media. So I'm trying to do a brand Augustus Media, and I, I would much prefer to be a little bit underestimated, a little bit m- more behind the scenes. Um, not that I could pull off both things. I think kind of he's superhuman on that level. But, um, you know, how it comes about, like, I do as much as I can champion the industry here i believe in like emerging markets i believe in media you know i'm on the board of a few companies uh i invest in media companies uh i'm also now on the board of the iab the advertising industry bureau here to push the agenda for modern media publishers so i care about this space and uh and yeah a good connection good relationship with gary and his team and whenever they're here we do some stuff with them brilliant brilliant and Another thing I have to ask you, you don't like the word expat. Um, why is that? Just out of curiosity, as, look, I'm, I'm obviously new here. What's the difference between expat and immigrant? Uh, I like the word immigrant because I think immigrant, I think it has a disrespect. People think it's a, not a nice connotation, but actually Ireland, you know, Irish people build places by being immigrants and by being well, doing well there and staying where they move. And there's no shame in it, right? Like, you know, famous people in America were immigrants. Like, Gary Vaynerchuk is an immigrant. Steve mm-hmm. Jobs is Syrian, okay. you know? Um, like, so, you know, from... But, but, but like, so that, that, that's kind of immigrant thing. I think ex, the term expat has uh, connotations of a colonial time and a country club and things like that in, in Kenya, Nairobi, Hong Kong, and all this stuff. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I don't like what it means to how people integrate with societies. I don't like that it's short-termism, that it's expatriate, that it's I'm an expatriate of that place, but I'm kind of, you know, still associated with it and I still talk of home. I don't believe in it. I believe in, you know, I'm here for a long time. I'm not emotionally attached to the place. If I have to leave, I'll leave. But I want to give it my best. I want to be here. I think it's a good mindset to be in, right? I'm here 10 years, uh, you know, and I think it's a good frame mind to be in. And, and that's one of the things that... You know, but but like these terms are only what they are, right? Mm-hmm. They, you know, people call Emiratis locals, right? But locals, where we're from, is just people from the parish, right? Yeah. So it, it's just it's just terms. I don't get upset about them. And expat is a fine term to use here. I just think that you know, I think that people could embrace the Middle East more if they learned the language, if they got involved in the society and the communities and things like that. And I think um, that's what I would like to do myself. Um, what do you think you've learned from your upbringing in, in rural Ireland? You know, you could have been brought up in, in Waterford um, that you apply or that you can still see in you today. I oh, definitely have the accent on it, so I can't talk too far <laughs> about that. Like, but, you know, little things, I don't know, you, they probably became more identified or more evident over the past couple of years. Um, I suppose how you deal with people would be a big thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I mean, definitely. I think like my upbringing was a rural upbringing. It wasn't even a city upbringing. Same me, yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think it's definitely. I, I mean, I'd have to ask people like if they think I'm different to someone else. Like, you know, uh, like, like my my family, my friends. You know, my dad passing away when I was young. Like, all all these things are part of my upbringing. There's a bit of drive there. There's a bit of, you know. Um, I'm involved in the Irish Business Network here and I took part in a lot of the things that the Foreign Affairs did at the Expo and things like that and I was just 
for someone who's been out of Ireland 10 years, I was just reminded, I was just proud of what they do, the Global Ireland plan, and I was just proud of their missions and the, and, and the things like that that I was exposed to that I'd forgotten about. And it reminded me of Irish people punching above their weight, you know, in, uh, in many different ways. And I think that that's something that I've taken with me, that I believe that I can do something here. I don't have to worry about um, not being capable of leaving the mark or being, uh, you know, of Irish people being able to be successful business people in the Middle East. And I think that there's definitely something that something about being Irish and the type of uh, local kind of culture upbringing that we had, Mm. which is real Ireland, basically, um, that you kind of identify with. 100%, 100%. Do you have an early morning routine? I like to ask successful people or people who are achieving a huge amount in in business. Do you have an early morning routine? Yeah, well, I train every morning. So I do triathlon, I do Ironman, and I train every morning and I just go and train as fast as I can. Like, I just get out of bed and I go and train. Like what time would you be up? Five every day, four weekends. <laughs> you don't uh, get to sleep in until... N- no, maybe 5.30. No, no, and I train seven days a week and, you know, I travel a bit as well. But but this is the thing, like, th- like I'm single, I'm 38 and I, this is what I do. I do six days a week work um, and I read and I watch football on Saturdays and that's it. Brilliant. Um, just to finish it up, what would be two daily non-negotiables that you have to... That you adhere to. You gave me a heads up on these, this question, and I just, I, I just didn't, didn't have a right answer for it. And I'm struggling <laughs> for one now, but um, you know, I, like, um, I, you know what? Uh, I don't really. I, I like doing things now on my own terms because I think I've designed it towards this goal and this mission. And, and I, Jamie, before I wasn't a very selfish person. I was quite a generous person, and you know. Uh, but now I've become more selfish in terms of um, opportunity costs. Opportunity costs is something I understand from economics, right? But um, anything that's an opportunity cost that that's against the mission of making this company what it is or living a long and healthy life, um, they're kind of all non-negotiables. So there might be more than two. And, um, you know, when, when people go on holiday in Dubai, uh, friends of mine, if they ever listen to this, <laughs> Um, it's like I, you know, I don't like this. Another thing as well as expat, I don't like when people say we have visitors, because in Ireland, if you have visitors, it means there's someone in your house. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in Dubai, if someone from your country or from your extended network is in the city, you suddenly have to stop what you're doing and go and entertain them. I don't like that, because that's uh, that's like they come here on holiday. They're five thousand kilometers away from home or whatever. And, and like that's a kind of a non-negotiable like because I want to go and about my business I, it's my I, I've got commitments and if I if I go and entertain them and spend two or three hours telling them what Dubai is like over dinner because it's always the same questions yeah. then I can't get up and train if I can't get up and train then I don't have the mental health and the ability to deal with the stresses of dealing with everything that we deal with on a daily basis money people legal everything that we deal with you're on the back foot straight away going forward exactly so so and people don't understand that and like relationships are harder friends are harder family's harder but that's a non-negotiable and i'm at the stage in my life where i might people will always say on your deathbed you regret that but i'm not regretting it now that's a non-negotiable for me 
anything that takes me away from what I'm doing. And good friends have understood that over the years, and many haven't, and many still don't. Um, do you get a certain amount of hours of sleep every night? Do you have to get eight or nine hours, or do you operate off six or five? I'm not obsessed over it. Like, if I fall asleep at 8.30 or 9 and I'm up at 5, I'm happy. Um, if I'm flying and I get two or three hours sleep, I know that that's gonna, I'm going to kind of suffer at some point. I'll need to have a nap on the Saturday a week later. Um, like I don't, I don't go. I need eight. I need six. I need three. Like I just try and go to bed early. I have a routine at the evening. I go home. I watch stocks and shares. I watch an Arabic show. I fall asleep, uh, and then I get up at five. And and if I have, if I had six, seven, or eight hours sleep, great. Brilliant, brilliant. Look, um, we're going to finish it off. Uh, do you have a motto that you live by? Uh, so uh, Augustus is the name of the company. We have a lot of quotes about Emperor Augustus here. Um, things that I believe in are like loads of phrases. There's loads of phrases like forgiven, not forgotten, move on, life's too short, that type of thing. My favourite football club are Blackburn Rovers oh, and they have, uh, they're not very good and I was watching them yesterday but, but I watch them every week and it's two hours of escapism. They're crap but uh, I love watching them. And uh, But they have a nice crest and it says Arte et Labore, Arte et Labore and it's uh, style and hard work and um, you know like creativity and, and graft sort of thing and I think like that's a decent motto um, I have I have a tattoo that's uh, no Roman numerals of my dad's date of birth but I don't have any other big mottos I, you know uh, I, don't, I don't fully like I think you know there's lots of quotes there's lots of things um, you know we do a lot of these on Smashy as well that motivate and inspire people uh, but at the end of the day we're all human and we're all equal and we can all make up our own quotes and we can all inspire others in the same way so as much as I have quotes of five or six industry titans on my wall mm-hmm. in my office I took this from Kobe Bryant he would he would say I'm going to go and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast I'm going to go to Goat Mountain the, the greatest of all time and I would ask those people on the mountain and, and he mentioned basketball players what would they do at that time so I do the same thing. Like this is why I don't really have a mentor. That I kind of go to the equivalent of Goat Mountain. I go, well, what would Ted Turner do? Walt Disney do? Oprah Winfrey? What would these people do? Um, uh, and and they're the kind of mottos and the quotes that I kind of use to kind of direct me. Brilliant. Look, I think we could uh, we definitely delve into a huge amount more. Um, we might follow up at a different stage, but let's finish it there um, I think we covered a huge amount I really appreciate it Richard for taking time out uh, to come on Inside View podcast and look best luck with everything going forward thanks a lot Jamie and best luck to you too I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Richard that is all from us on this week's episode please do get in contact with the show if you'd like to contribute in any way possible you can email us info on the ball teambuilding.com or you can find us on all social media platforms just search an Inside View podcast or on the ball team building. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week when we have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred on a fan. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.